Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! (laughs) This is going to be such a great episode. Welcome! Welcome to the fertile Nigerian blockchain edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It is going to be a fun episode because not only is Anna Shamansky here, hello, but we have the one and only Erin Griffith. Hi. Hello, Erin. Um, introduce yourself. You are now at A Wired. senior writer at Wired. Oh, so exciting. Erin and I go way back. <laughs> oh, yeah. We sat next to each other or on the same floor at Reuters. Many, many years ago. And when when Erin was writing for that noble publication, P.E. Hub. Yeah, that's, which, that's a niche. <laughs> covering leverage loans during the financial crisis for a very niche private equity blog. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great blog. Not enough They're people still read around, that actually. blog. Yeah. Um, that was that was where Dan Primack got his made his bones before he went on to great things. That's true. I think they they have narrowed their focus a little bit more now. <laughs> They've narrowed it even more. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true to be about the middle market of private equity, which I'm not sure if you're aware that the private equity industry has a middle market. Oh, Everyone yes. knows Blackstone and KKR, but there's a whole host of firms that invest, you know, that have funds that are like 400 to 800 million dollars and they, you know, they buy like sort of smaller family-owned industrial businesses, although I feel like they've got to be running out of those. Now. It's it's niche. Yeah. And so if you ever want to really discover niche financial nerd nerdydom, don't be listening to Slate Money because we just talk about big hand wavy issues. Go to <laughs> PE Hub where neither Dan nor Aaron still writes, but other people do, and you get to find out about middle market leveraged loans. <laughs> yes. But we are not going to talk about middle market leveraged loans. We are going to talk about uh Nigeria. We are going to talk about fertility, and we are going to talk about the blockchain because we fit, we it, we felt that 
for all that we've been making, you know, snide and snarky crypto bashing asides on this show for a while, we haven't actually properly done a crypto bashing segment. So on we can't comes- promise that there won't be plenty of those as well, though. Yes. Yeah. But this will be a more comments. straightforward smackdown. <laughs> this will be a straightforward smackdown. Well, I, we will see that there are interesting questions and there will be interesting answers. And we're going to try and work out what is going on with the crypto, as it's, as it's technically known. <laughs> yeah. And I should actually say this. My my cryptocurrency friends have corrected me on this. The blockchain is incorrect. It's it's all block. There are many blockchains. So saying the blockchain <laughs> makes you sound like you don't know what you're talking about. Plenty of people make this mistake. Yeah. But uh, I'm not putting. I'm not putting. I'm not putting. I'm not putting Nigeria on the blockchain. I'm putting Nigeria on a blockchain. Yes. Now, now yes. I find. Now I am. Now we're insiders. Now we're insiders. <laughs> exactly. Um, but before we get onto any of that, um, we have a fun thing on Pi Day. Um, Anna, what's Pi Day? Uh, that would be March 14th. March 14th. Um, 314. On Pi Day, uh, the entire Sleep Money crew, that's Anna and me and Dan and Jordan and anyone else who's listening to this who wants to come along, we're all going to go along to the public theater on Lafayette Street in Manhattan. And we're going to go check out this play called The Low Road, which is about inequality and awesome stuff. So there's a bit of a sort of Slate money tie-in yes, there. Yeah. And it looks kind of amazing. So we're psyched about this. And so we're just kind of putting the word out that if you want to go see The Low Road at the Public Theater, you should probably do it on Pi Day mm-hmm. for two reasons. Number one, we're all going to be there and we'll be in the pub afterwards and we will have drinks and we can hang out. And number two, we have a promo code for you. If you want to use the code MONEY14, on the website, it only works on Pi Day. It doesn't work on any other day. But if you go to the Public Theatre website and use the promo code MONEY14, you can get super discounted, like $30 tickets. And so as many of you guys who want to come along, come along, we'll have drinks, and we'll it'll be fun. Anyway, on with the show. So we should move on to the crypto. We got an email from Thomas in... Oxford, England, and he sent us a question. So, Erin Griffith, can you answer our listener question? I am probably not qualified to answer listener questions unless it's about custodianship, a very specific area I've been exploring, (laughs) or perhaps startups that pivot to blockchain. You're more qualified than we are. Yes, I will try my best. Try your best. Uh, The question is, I'm a professor, and I was just talking with a student who sheepishly admitted he was having a great time and making a bunch of money doing cryptocurrency pump and dump schemes. (laughs) I pretended this was totally normal and quickly Googled it. Oh my God, this is a thing and it seems widespread. I'd love to learn more. Is it illegal? Is it really a big thing? Um, (laughs) Well, I think... All of us could answer the question, are pump and dump schemes illegal? Yes. Are they illegal in the cryptocurrency world? Unclear. Um, But I do love that the student was investing for pleasure and profit. (laughs) (laughs) So to be clear, the way that a cryptocurrency pump and dump scheme works is you invent some kind of a token or you just find some kind of a token, Mm -hmm. which is trading 
for a low price. Usually and altcoins, which are not like, you know, the main cryptos like yeah. Bitcoin or Ether, like some random some, tiny little coin that's listed somewhere. Or even or barely listed. You can only trade it on some obscure exchange. But in any case, what you do is you buy up a bunch of it and then you go all over Reddit and similar places. Or and, Telegram groups is a very popular <laughs> yes, Telegram groups. And you start talking about how amazing this coin is. And, oh, my God, look how much it's going up in price. And everyone goes, this is an amazing coin. It's going up in price. And then they see it go up in price. And everyone else goes, oh, my God, this is an amazing coin. It goes up in price. Because the only reason (laughs) to buy a coin is because it goes up in price. And so if this coin in the kind of weird self-fulfilling prophecy just winds up going up in price, that is in and of itself reason to buy it. And then it goes up in price. And then you sell all the coins that you bought before you started the campaign and then you make lots of money except for unless you're one of the people who was buying it just because you thought it would continue to go up in price which well, is the reason that most people yes. are buying. <laughs> but that's but that's it, it works unless you fail to sell it before it goes down in price. right right exactly so the people doing the scheme have to have some suckers who come along with them well or the, the point being that the only people who are the suckers are the people who go in at the end. Like, mm-hmm. as, if you're a sucker at the beginning, you can you can like you can you can actually make money just by drafting on other people's. Yes, that's why there's always a greater dumps. fool. Yes. Exactly. The, one, the fool that comes after you. So right. so so the, yeah, this is an interesting question. This has obviously been happening quite a lot. Um, two questions, I guess. One is just how widespread is this, and two. Um, should people doing this be worried about going to jail? I mean, I don't think I mean, this has been this idea has been around since like the boiler room days. And I guess people have gotten in trouble for it at some point for misrepresenting or perhaps pretending to have inside information. The, the whole entire world of cryptocurrencies is extremely <laughs> unregulated at this point, And it's moving so quickly that regulators are just kind of struggling to even make statements that scare people. Um, I, I don't I don't know if people could actually go to jail for this. It seems like there's a lot bigger crimes happening in the cryptocurrency world that regulators Regulators will focus on first. This does remind me of one of the recent scandals involving Tether. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Tether is amazing. Um, but before we get into the scandal involving Tether, first of all, um, because at some point when there was that big stock market crash, or around the same time as the stock market crash, there was a Bitcoin crash. And although there's absolutely no reason for Bitcoin going up or going down, there was a bunch of talk about the reason why Bitcoin was going down was something, something, Tether something. So now, Erin, you can tell us what Tether is and, yeah, what is Tether? Tether is a is a protocol, I believe, that is tied to the dollar and it is meant to uh, smooth out all of the volatility in the Bitcoin world. That's a very layman's and, term. And, and <laughs> somewhere along the line, there's a company which claims to have a bank account in like Denmark or Holland or something like that, where they claim to have hundreds of millions of dollars, which are backing up all of these tokens. Because which to- very much goes against the idea of Bitcoin well, in the, this in the my beginning. Favorite part of this scandal is that almost every part of it seems to mirror everything about central banks mm-hmm. that cryptocurrency acolytes hate. 
I mean, that, that, is, that is what's happening in every piece of it. I mean, even the exchanges, even the wallets, which are now getting hacked and which are running into their own security problems. Um, yesterday, we saw that Coinbase was accidentally uh, overcharging people by 17 to 50 times, uh, just like taking repeat deposits. And this is something that if a, if a bank did that, people would be losing their minds. And Coinbase had been doing it for two weeks before they even told anybody about it. And And to be clear, Coinbase is, I mean... It's hard to be definitive about this, but I would say that Coinbase is the biggest and most established and most blue chip of all of the in the U.S. Bl- I think outside, Bitcoin and blockchain outside of the U.S. that's not the case, but in the U.S. for sure they are. Um, outside of the U.S., it's just a free for all. <laughs> but, but but exactly outside of the U.S., it's a free for all. I mean, is there anyone even outside the U.S. who has the kind of copper bottom standing? Well, blockchain.info, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're mm-hmm. one of the other, they're based in London. Um, I mean, on, on purpose, actually. Uh, so that way they can sort of avoid some of the regulatory dangers and uncertainty going on here because some of the European countries have been a little bit faster to adopt this stuff um, or or uh, been more clear about their regulations of it. Um, they're pretty well known. Um, and there's just a ton of Asian exchanges that, you know, have been around for a while and have had various uh, run-ins. Yeah, of course, the the first and biggest Asian exchange was Mt. Gox, which (laughs) went spectacularly belly up. And what happened with Mt. Gox was that everyone saw that these very central parts of the Bitcoin and blockchain economy were all built on sand. You couldn't trust anything. And that that was the end of Bitcoin. And basically, then no one ever saw a cryptocurrency ever again. And that is sort of the the big over <laughs> overhanging challenge here is credibility. Um, but so that's my question. Like after Mount Gox dies, how does this entire ecosystem continue? Like why didn't that kill off the whole thing? Because Bitcoin still existed. But what what are you? Or do you think regulations should have I, killed I, off the I, whole no, thing? No, I'm saying no. I'm t- I'm talking about like the fact that when you're dealing with a trustless system like Bitcoin, where the whole thing is based on mistrust, and you wake up one morning and you realize that you can't trust Mt. Gox, which at the time was by far the biggest and most important Bitcoin exchange, and you suddenly realize that in a trustless system, you can't trust anyone. You can't trust Coinbase. You can't trust wallets. You can't trust you know your, your own self, really, to keep your coins safe. At that point... Don't you just give up and realize this whole thing is incredibly foolish and it's never going to work? Well, I think memories are short. Um, you know, a couple of years have gone by since Mount, the Mount Gox thing happened. And uh, a lot of technology has been built up around the blockchain. Use case, <laughs> a blockchain. A blockchain. Yes, a blockchain. Use cases have emerged. And, uh, and people trust institutions less <laughs> then they trust each other or themselves. And I think that has sort of been building. You could, you know, attribute that to sort of this kind of populist anti-government institution wave that we've been riding for the last couple of years. You could connect it to a lot of things, but I think people just like the idea of power to the people. And this represents that a little bit. Yeah. And I think what we were talking about um, before, how a lot of people who are crypto acolytes are almost like fundamentalist, like Christians in the sense of they will not accept any the, I remember having this conversation years and years ago with Barry Silbert, who was one of the sort of early financializers of Bitcoin. And I asked him very clearly, I was like, Barry, is there anything at all? Is there like any hypothetical event or 
um, piece of evidence which could make you change your mind on like the future awesomeness of blockchain. And he was basically like, no, I'm a I'm a hodler, you know. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, so (laughs) I mean, but and you meant like nuclear war, anything, because, you know, if we don't have an Internet connection, you can't use blockchain or Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really hard. It was really hard to sort of. What the okay? So the thing we're talking about here was um, a what a year long study by Microsoft, which Correct, came to yes. the conclusion that blockchain based technologies are really not everything that they're cracked up to be. And it was then, not it was not scalable in a way that it was useful for them to use in certain parts of their business. They determined that. And then the reaction from the Bitcoin true believers was, these idiots have no idea what they're talking about. Microsoft hasn't been relevant mm-hmm. for years. Why should we care what they say? They didn't study it right. They're not using it right. There was, I mean, yeah, the reaction is always is so immediate. It's like the, it, it is very much religious, like you were saying. Anna. And and then the, and the weird thing is, is, as Anna was saying, is that there's really nothing which can make them say anything else. There's no, there's, it, it's, it's an article of faith. And, and what is it? Like, that creates this kind of fun, you know, unthinking faith. Yeah, it, it almost seems similar to when you have certain people also in political parties who, no matter what reality you show mm-hmm. to them, they will say, no, that doesn't fit into my reality, so I'm going to explain it away. Let me go to my Reddit board and find an answer right. to this for you, and I will come back and present it to you. And part of the reason I think this is important is that I think some people in this community, it's not just a currency they use. As Aaron, you were saying, it's it's like an entire identity. Oh yeah, it's a lifestyle brand. Right. Um, I mean, you buy into Bitcoin because you have adopted. You've you know, you don't necessarily have to be on Reddit. You don't necessarily aspire to buy a Lamborghini. You don't necessarily have to like buy into all of the stuff. But you definitely have adopted this lifestyle of or this uh, this this belief of decentralization is better. Um, you know, institution a world without institutions is better. That this thing can empower can be a revolution. Is the next internet? All of that you've bought into that, and you sort of want to project it and every aspect of your life. And you really don't want to be told anything otherwise. The best example of this that I can think of was um, a month, around a month ago when, you know, the really big uh, sell-off was happening and Bitcoin was, the uh, price of Bitcoin was free-falling. There were some really interesting conversations inside the Reddit board, um, the r slash Bitcoin. And one of them was um, basically this kind of slow realization of someone saying, yeah, there's too many altcoins out there. Too many of them are scammers. Maybe, maybe someone should should do something so that way not everybody can can mint and mint a coin um and then there was somebody who responded and was like wait a minute are you guys are you guys finally admitting that there's some value to financial regulation <laughs> and because it is against the religion to right. to want to invite any kind of regulation i think that might be changing though or at least i'm hoping because it is in the best interest of the entire bitcoin blockchain cryptocurrency com- community to restore credibility and to have some regulations that maybe wipe out some of the bad actors or like these that that help them to avoid some of these scams that are going to continually make headlines and overall hurt the idea and make it seem like this crazy sort of Mount Gox style um, novelty of of scammers and and uh, and bad people that will kind of keep all of the credible people out of it. So in terms of like high profile um well, I don't know what the word evangelists. Oh I need. I need to. I need to bring this guy up because I, you know, <laughs> I'm going to use. The, I'm going to use the word. I apologize to all listeners. If you have children in the room, cover their ears. Um, James Altucher. 
I thought you were going to say the phrase thought leader, which I also, <laughs> is a phrase that I also think should not be uttered um, in front of children. What, like, the, the, he, this guy who's been floating around the blogosphere and the kind of, you know. He's a, he's a lifestyle for- sort of, like, get uh, self-help guru. He's He's got tons of best-selling books. He's got a background of being, you know, at a hedge fund. Um, and he's a compelling blogger. Uh, he's got a big following. And he has, in the last year, a couple of years, decided that uh, he's going to refashion himself as a as a crypto genius. Literally, the words crypto genius are on his ads. And if you've ever Googled anything related to this stuff, you'll be chased around the <laughs> Internet by these ads forever. I, I was actually just reading one of my old stories on Wired, and it was about cryptocurrency, and there was an Altature ad on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, how? yeah, like... He had okay. The, the the interesting thing about Altucher is that he's been floating around, as you say, for long before mm-hmm. this whole crypto thing came up, and somehow managed to build himself some credibility by telling a lot of stories about how he was incredibly untrustworthy and would build people. He loves and, to talk about failure. Yeah, that is. And that is I, I have failed many, many times, so you should trust me. And it's like okay. Um, so this, I actually, I, I read your story <laughs> that you wrote about seeing him. Mm, yeah, he he uh, owns a comedy club or is part owner of a comedy club. And he hosted a debate with a fellow uh, financial advice guru who is a gold uh, bull named James Rickard. And they, they debated wearing boxing, <laughs> uh, boxing robes, um, gold versus Bitcoin. And one of the things I found really interesting, one of the details, was when for no reason whatsoever, he started talking about how his daughters were too dumb to understand Uh, Bitcoin. And I think it was maybe him just trying to be funny because, like, it was so, like, kind of shocking and weird and a little appalling that people laughed and he just, like, kept going with it. And he actually has a little bit of a Trumpian way of speaking where it's like you say this thing and then you kind of go and you keep saying it and then you go further and further and further and then you don't really remember what you're talking about. And it's funny. Um, he 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 made a couple other comments that were kind of sexist where, about like the fact that there are no women that buy into Bitcoin, and you know that's maybe true, but maybe a little bit of a stereotype. And if you continually repeat it, it's not going to make women feel any more welcome. Um, he it, it was very random. He was trying to make the point that that uh, young people don't understand or care about cryptocurrencies, which I don't think is true. I think they're adopting it a lot. In- including me- our listener, Tom's student, who, like, <laughs> is this... I mean, if you're pumping That's and a dumping, hustle, though. That's not. That's almost less... That he, he might not be a hodler. He might not be a true believer. He, he sounds more like a hustler. Uh, and, and hustling... And you can do that, right? Like, the Bitcoin space is big enough now that it's possible to make actual money just on the outskirts of bitcoin you don't actually need to own much or or certainly you don't need to hold you can just kind of run ads if you're james altucher or you can pump and dump like you're this well actually you should we we should say that that altucher has been accused there's been some reports of actually kind of doing pump and dump style schemes because what he's doing with all of these ads is trying to convince people to pay him two hundred dollars up to two thousand dollars for research reports that he writes that will reveal the next bitcoin or the next cryptocurrency that's coming up and he, he has enough of a following that if he tells a bunch of people buy this like tiny little altcoin it will drive the price up and who knows what he owns or what is happening behind the scenes there but it seems extremely uh shady right yeah and i think this is one of the central points about bitcoin in much of cryptocurrency is that fundamentally nobody understands it fully 
People will tell you they do. The more they're in the community, they'll explain. They'll use lots of terms. We all do this. But I am thoroughly convinced that nobody fully understands it. It's like really complicated financial products. The, the one thing I'm 100 percent convinced financial about is technology. that yeah. if you say anything skeptical about Bitcoin, you will be told by a million people you don't understand it. And that's mm-hmm. what I mean. It's this emperor has no clothes idea that people don't want to appear stupid. So then they don't want to criticize it. And then you ha- and if somebody tells you, well, the reason that this seemingly obvious thing isn't true is because you're too stupid. How do you respond to that? This is very prominent, I think, especially at um, aging Fortune 500 companies where they don't want to be the one. They don't want to be Andy Grove in the early 90s who says, oh, Intel doesn't think phones are going to be a big deal. We're not going to mobile business phones. That's a stupid idea. And then, you know, obviously, fast forward, that, that's so, the end of the story. Uh, uh, so they, they, they're eager to speak the language and at least pretend that they're in on the, the next hot, cool uh, thing. Are you subtweeting Kodak here? <laughs> Kodak or Atari or I mean, even do you remember Hooters, the parent company of Hooters, which had just filed for bankruptcy and they, you know, they had, I don't know, like a market cap of like $10 million, something very low. And they uh, they just like whispered the word blockchain in, uh, <laughs> in one of their press releases and their stock completely shot up. I'm sure it's, you know, back down lower now. But, but. but the interesting thing about Kodak is that it's stock, they whispered the word blockchain with as far as I can make out, nothing really backing it up. They did a little more than whisper. They were at CES yeah. and they had a physical uh, mining, like, yeah, rig. mining rig, which a lot of people on Twitter were just like, "This is a joke. You have got this." And they had these guides that said, "You will make three thousand dollars every single year," and and it it doesn't even make sense because, right. as we know, Bitcoin becomes harder and more expensive but, to mine over so, time. So, but in any case, Kodak comes out with this rig and various other stuff which is ludicrous on its face the stock pops in much the way that stocks do pop when the word blockchain gets associated with a a company but the weird thing to me was that it didn't go back down oh it did though it i I was looking at it it's i mean it's still about double what it was it was trading around three it went up to maybe like 12 now it went it's now like around seven so it's still yeah they they did I mean, in the in the attention, you know, we're talking about Kodak. Like, would would we be? T- what other thing would make us talk about Kodak? So, I think the one thing which which I want to sort of just grip onto because it's very hard amongst all of these different coins and tokens and companies, and it all seems to be a mess. And um, it's very easy to just be like, I don't get it. Yeah, but the one thing which I do get is that there's something like terrifyingly Hobbesian about the entire blockchain world and or Bitcoin world or whatever you want to call it, crypto world, especially when it comes to the degree of inequality that you see there, that because everything is written on the blockchain, you can look at the blockchain, you can see that 0.01% of the holders of these currencies own like 95% of the currency. Mm -hmm. And, And there's this just massive, massive degree of inequality, which makes, you know, some kind of sub-Saharan despotism look perfectly equitable. So, <laughs> And it's ironic then that it has this image of power to the people, decentralization, exactly. anybody, you know, we're going to rise up. Is there any reason to believe that in any kind of best case scenario for this entire weird crypto economy, that the degree of inequality would ever improve or like that this thing is not just baked in from the beginning well i think the creators of a lot of the 
other coins would say that they're trying to fix that, be it like Ether or any of these ICOs, that's an opportunity for you to then but isn't buy ETH, into this. Isn't, isn't the distribution of Ether just as unequal as the distribution of Bitcoin? Yeah, but with Ether, then you can, you know, hold your own token sales and people can, people are, you know, creating lots of new tokens basically and, and, off of that but, platform. But aren't all of those tokens also just as unequal as Bitcoin? Ah. Uh, Okay, yes. All right, I see where you're going and, and I can never win this, but like I'm just trying to argue why uh I, I think that people would view it that way, but I, I agree. I mean if when when you have a market, especially like with Bitcoin where some of these major holders can just move the market whenever they want to and there's definitely manipulation happening, I think that's um that, that just feels unfair. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies all lined up and ready to compare. So it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Um, okay, so enough about Bitcoin. Let's talk about babies. <laughs> um, not the, many babies. The good thing about babies is that the amount of inequality in babies is relatively low. The, I actually you, know some babies that got Bitcoin uh, when they were born, um, you know, many years ago. And now they're like, you know, sitting on huge... Gazillionaire babies. Yes, exactly. They're billionaire toddlers. Mm-hmm. Have they, have they, they're, like, they're like buying Lamborghini diapers or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so... I mean, it's a classic hodled gift, right? Well, right. You, ha- you have to hold it until at least you're 18. Who knows um, where it'll you be? You know, I, I try and give it. babies bottles of wine because I like, <laughs> because I'm like, now, nah, you know, when you when you drink it, it'll be nice and aged. But no, I, I, should, I should totally be giving them Dogecoin. <laughs> happy, happy year of the dog, everyone, by the way. I'm very excited about the year of the, the dog. Um, anyway, babies. Um, America's fertility rate is plunging it always used to be like the one place in the developed world which was having a relatively high fertility rate Mm -hmm. and was above replacement rate and this kind of stuff even as the italians and the irish and europeans in general were seeing their populations inexorably decline uh that's not true anymore yes uh so there are a few things interesting about um, a few studies that have come out recently. Now, one is showing that um now for americans women the average fertility rate is 1.7 so below two. And also women, not only are they having fewer babies, but they want to be having more. So the gap between what women are saying they want and what they are having is actually growing. So women are saying they want 2.8, which I think we can round up to three children, and yet they aren't able to or they aren't for some reason. And if you're interested in these studies about fertility, I would really recommend reading Sarah Clifford Vox. She's written quite a bit on this. 
And I think there are many reasons. I think the most obvious for women who are in higher socioeconomic levels is most likely going to be education, marrying later. And for women who in lower socioeconomic levels, there are also a number of factors. One is the availability of better forms of contraception, frankly. These kind of uh, reversible but long-acting contraceptives have also massively reduced the, or well, not massively, but have reduced the rate of um, unplanned pregnancies. And and what and the sort of dirty secret of the high U.S. fertility rate was always that the difference between America and Europe was largely in unplanned pregnancies rather than yeah, planned ones. It's interesting when you do compare us to Europe and you also compare within Europe. And this is something I think we'll probably talk about more when we get into the other study. But that policies really matter. That when you look at Europe and you see where there are higher fertility rates in, in I think, France, if you look at rates of fertility in France or in Scandinavia versus in Italy, they're significantly higher in places where it's easier to have children, where they have more family-friendly policies, where women are more able to both work and have children, where governments make that harder, fewer women have babies. We see this in Japan as well. So, okay, so let's let's talk about Denmark. Yes. It was Denmark, right? It was Denmark, It yeah. was Denmark. So this is um, the economic angle here is basically this thing which is true in most every country, but certainly in Denmark. Um which is this massive, massive discontinuity in incomes between men and women after they have babies. That when men have babies, their incomes just keep on going on the same trajectory as if they didn't have babies. And um, actually, it can help them. They can get a boost from having children. It's, it's, but like to a first approximation, it's basically exactly the same. And if men, and if women don't have babies, their income trajectory is basically the same. And men and women, to a first approximation, there are small differences, but they basically are on exactly the same trajectory for as long as they don't have babies. And then after they have babies, men and women, men continue on that trajectory and women without babies continue on that trajectory. But if you have a baby and you're a woman, then your income plunges and it never recovers. Right. And is there a policy that they have that that they attribute this to? Well, this in the in this particular study in Denmark, this was actually really interesting because Denmark is what many people on the left in America would love America to be. They have it's like 52 weeks of paid maternity paternity leave. They have very affordable universal childcare till the age of 6. They have lots of vacation time. It seems like the ideal place to raise a child. Nevertheless, there continues to be this gap between the wages of men and women. And it's clear that it's related to having children. And this is interesting because this raises the question of, well, what do we do? Because if in this society where in theory they're doing everything right, you still have this gap. Does that just come down to a perception? No, it's actually behavior. And the really, really fascinating thing about this um, study is that it's... (laughs) Not all women. Some women, after they have babies, basically continue on their earning paths just like men do. And uh, and having the baby is something they do along the way, just like having a baby is something that a man does along the way. And it's economically not dissimilar. And then other women do this thing where they effectively drop out of the workforce for, you know, a a couple of years or they go part time or there's there's a – 
big sort of step change in their lives and they're like okay economically speaking i'm i'm just choosing to become less of a full-time employee and more of a you know spend much more time being a, a mother and the new thing in this study that i hadn't seen before is that the difference between the women who work less and earn less and the women who work more and earn more is entirely a function or nearly entirely a function of whether their mothers did the same thing. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And I would say that frankly didn't surprise me at all because it seems like in a a society (laughs) like Denmark, where in many ways you're kind of controlling for economic necessity, then whether or not you continue to work at the same level in the same role after would seem to be more based on personal choice and probably what you grew up with. And it had nothing to do with what their, you know, what the father's mothers had done. And it was only a function of what the mother's mother had done. I I just, I find that interesting because I feel like so many people, at least in my generation, this is completely anecdotal, make their decisions based on, it's a generational thing. It's like what you were sort of taught in school and what you, like all of the, like you go girl sort of messages that you get all throughout growing up. And and to learn that it actually comes, you know, back to your parents, it feels like very Freudian and feels like very fate (laughs) is all set out for you. And it like feels like you can't make your own decision and it takes agency out of it. That's why I don't like it. And and no, and I think that's absolutely right. That like, does this, this mean, Anna, that it really, these wage gaps are kind of like biologically baked into our societies? So this is where I think some other studies are interesting. So there are some um, studies done uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, and well, and particularly in pharmacies, because it used to be when there were mom and pop pharmacies, there was a lot more of a wage gap between male and female pharmacists. Then when it switched to being more um, chains, so essentially Nobody cared who was giving them their prescription. It could be anyone. The wage gap almost went away entirely. And this suggests that having the type of occupation where you can have more flexible hours and workers are, frankly, more interchangeable in a way could actually be really beneficial for women because then that can enable them during the years where, I mean, yes, men are doing more, but women are probably always going to be doing more. During some of those years when they're having kids, they can have more flexible schedules, yet continue to be in the workforce. And so I find that interesting in terms of thinking of, well, what do we do next with this information? As opposed to just kind of throwing up our hands and saying, well, if your mother didn't work, you then will certainly not be continuing on. What can you do? I think this suggests, well, maybe if the culture and corporate culture potentially would start shifting more towards these kind of this kind of flexibility that ultimately this could be good for women. I think you're right that this does have to come from the corporations because I don't necessarily see a lot of these changes being made at a government level. One thing that I think is really interesting about this is I was just reading Emily Chang's book, Brotopia, um, and she talks a lot about how the tech companies have been super out in front about providing services to women to help them deal with you know difficult pregnancies, um, to uh, they're providing egg freezing services now. A lot, a lot of all the big tech companies have started doing this, but they have done almost nothing in terms of dealing or helping the women with the child care after they're born. Um, there's not really daycare services. There's not really like, you know, a lot of flexibility um, around these jobs and how that is a huge gap and which is likely leading to a lot of the women who leave STEM um, do it in their 30s when they're kind of at that child 
bearing or like about ready to have kids. And so I think that that's got to be the next step for a lot of the companies, especially the tech companies that think that they're the most progressive of everyone. Do, wait, I, and I need to come in and ask, you know, in the absence of Kathy O'Neill, that I need to I need to ask the <laughs> Kathy O'Neill question here, which is like egg freezing. Is that in any way like a feminist thing or is that just a way of keeping the women like in the workforce and working and not having babies yet. Yeah, it does feel a little Orwellian. Like, I, I, I think there was a lot of controversy. And I think when you talked to, I think Facebook was the first company to do this. And when you talked to Sheryl uh, Sandberg, you know, the reason they did it was because there was one employee who found out she had cancer and she couldn't have kids unless she froze her eggs now, but she couldn't afford it. And so Sheryl Sandberg was like, of course, Facebook will pay for this. And then realized, well, we shouldn't just do it for cancer victims. Let's do it for everyone. And then, and it seemed just like very, to, uh, a common sense kind of nice perk to provide, but then all the tech companies did it and everyone started asking, wait a minute, you're just trying to like exploit them before they have kids and then you're not helping them care for the kids after they have them or try to help them put that put it off for as long as possible. So, I mean, I I applaud the, that's fantastic. It's very expensive and mm-hmm. fertility treatments are very expensive and it's great that companies are wanting to help people, you know, in their building families instead of just saying, no, we only we're not even going to bother. Let's just hire young bros who are nowhere close to starting families. Um, I, I, I think it's great, but I, I agree that it does kind of look bad. Yeah. And I think I also think it's important for this probably to happen at the corporate level, because when we've seen some of the policies, seemingly progressive policies that other countries have instituted, they can have negative effects. So in a lot of Scandinavian countries where you do have really long maternity leaves, that also is often what causes more of a gap because first, if you offer longer maternity leaves, people are going to take them. So then they're out of the workforce potentially for a year or two years. And also employers know that. And so when they're thinking, who am I going to promote? Who am I going to put on certain tracks? It will also lead to fewer women in kind of management executive roles. So having a very, very, I'm not saying we shouldn't institute, I mean, we obviously should have uh, paid maternity leave in this country, but... And paternity leave. Agreed, agreed. (laughs) But I do think hopefully more change will come, I think, from the corporate level as both men and women ask for more flexibility. There was actually an article in the Financial Times, I think yesterday, about how in Germany there was this, uh, like a mining union, and they asked for fewer hours as opposed to more pay because they wanted to spend it with their families. And I think that's a really good sign because when both men and women are asking for it, Mm -hmm. then women won't be the only ones who are penalized. Mm -hmm. Solidarity. (laughs) Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. Let's talk about corruption in Nigeria, shall we? Yes. Because it's been a little while since we had a big Nigerian corruption story. There was mm-hmm. there have been big attempts to deal with Nigerian corruption over the years, um, with predictable effects of absolutely nothing. Um but this one, this latest one, has now managed to wind up with like big Western oil company CEOs mm-hmm. being criminally charged. Yes. So 
That's really what makes this different. It's also just huge. So I, 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 there was there was like the the big headline number here is one point one billion dollars. Yes, because so Royal Dutch Shell in two thousand eleven, Royal Dutch Shell and any this Italian company paid the Nigerian government one point three billion dollars for the rights to this like prized offshore oil field, but. <laughs> billion of that was then funneled to accounts for this company called Malibu Oil & Gas, from which it was used to pay kickbacks to any executives, from which it was paid to a number of Nigerian politicians, including allegedly former president Goodluck Jonathan. And it was used to pay this guy, Dan Atete, who is kind of at the center of this entire controversy as a former oil minister. Uh, So, I mean, like, you can't get more cliche than like former Nigerian oil minister winds up at the center of a multi-gazillion dollar bribery scandal. Um, But so there's some fascinating stuff here going on. Number one, the thing which really jumped out at me was the official any defense, any being the Italian oil company, the official any defense is, look, we just paid the Nigerian government 1.3 billion dollars for this oil field, right? And after that, what happens to the money is nothing to do with us. We didn't bribe anything. We we just gave it to the Nigerian government. What were we how were we supposed to control whether there was bribes being done after that point? Which would be a hell of a lot more believable if it wasn't for the fact that an any executive got Fifty million dollars in cash delivered to his Abuja house. Yes. Also, if there weren't countless emails and like recorded phone calls having people talking about it, it's it's absurd. And but hey, I, I will say one of the good things is that these executives are actually being charged. I think the current and former CEO of Any are both being charged, which is not something that normally happens. So here's my here's my my question is on the one hand it's ludicrous of course they knew that this was going on on the other hand how do you actually what were they meant to have done um what you have here is a situation where this former oil minister claimed that he owned the oil field which under various readings of the law, he probably did. And so what he basically said was, look, you know, if you want to buy this oil field, like all power to you, but you have to pay me for it. And then eventually a deal was done where of the $1.3 billion that went to the Nigerian government for the oil field, $1.1 billion went to him for the oil field because he colorably owned it. Um, he and was then, given it by a military dictator. <laughs> and then he was given it by a military dictator. But like at that point, you know, on the one hand, yeah, it's extremely dirty and nasty. So I can absolutely just understand anyone who would say, listen, you just don't do that. You don't wind up doing deals where former oil ministers get paid a billion dollars for an oil field, which they only own because they were gifted it by a former military dictator. Um, can I ask you a question? Though? Yeah. Was that like like expensive is that what you would nor- what they would normally have paid for it or was it an egregious overpayment i wouldn't say it was an egregious it, overpayment it was, but it was high it was i mean they yeah. wanted to buy it for 200 million or something well and that was price, only 50 percent of it and yeah, then and the it was, price kept on going up and up and up got it and certainly 
Yeah. The, well, the price of oil fields is like, you know, you kind of put your finger in the air and you make it make up a number. But it, it would seem that there'd be a market for it, given how scarce they are. <laughs> but I, I think what happened is the Shell in particular kind of thought that it had the inside track on getting this oil field. And well, they then, had the suitcases full of money. And then what happened is various Russians and other people started sniffing around and they started getting very scared that someone else would get the oil. Yeah, field. the yeah. French and the Chinese were both. And, and this is actually, to me, somewhat interesting part of this story is that this all started, well, initially it started in the late 90s, but then it really started in around 2002. And then for about 10 years, Royal Dutch Shell clearly wasn't paying out bribes because they couldn't close this. They kept trying to kind of like, court and then sue this guy, but they couldn't get the deal done. And then it appears that 2011, Eni comes on board, they're seeing a potentially more competition. And so then it appears that maybe they were like willing to let Eni do the dirty work and they would just kind of stand back and that let it That certainly looks like it. I mean, that the Shell doesn't have completely clean hands here, but they were very happy for any to wind up greasing whatever the wheels needed to be greased in order to make this happen, and they just come along for the ride. Right. Yeah, but I, I understand what you were saying before with the the idea that look, in theory, maybe this guy kind of had rights to this, so why don't they just pay him? But I do think this speaks to why corruption really is problematic. Is that the original reason that this guy, in theory, had rights was because there was this fake private company that was created that was actually owned by people directly tied to the government and was a way to kind of essentially engage in corruption at the very beginning. So to simply then pay him later and say like, well, well, he owned it. I feel like you're both reinforcing that the idea that that type of behavior is okay and this is also money now that is not going to the Nigerian government. This is not money that can be used for infrastructure, for health, for education. This is money that's going to be used from some criminal to – this was actually one of my favorite details. This Atete used $1.7 million to pay off money laundering fines that he had from France. So he used his bribe to pay off his money laundering fines. And then he used another $56 million to buy a private jet. Of course. But the um – but yeah, you're absolutely right. And the other thing which is worth noting here is that when the Nigerian government tried to send the $1.1 billion to this guy's Swiss bank account, the entire global banking system just said, uh-uh. Like, you know, like, no, no, no. This is just clearly corrupt. You're not allowed to do it. And so then they tried to send it to another bank account in... So it was, like, it was Switzerland, the UK. In the UK, it was frozen. And then they also tried in Lebanon. Lebanon. And they said yeah. no. And so Even the <laughs> Lebanese were saying this thing. <laughs> this looks sketchy. <laughs> so then they actually had to send it directly to accounts in Nigeria. So, But wouldn't that have been a red flag at a certain point? <laughs> would have been like, hmm, think. these institutions yeah. know something we don't? <laughs> like, exactly. And so this is, this is exactly why the claims of sort of innocence by the oil companies are so ludicrous is because – it was obvious even to the Lebanese bankers that this was crazy. And and I think Anna's point is is the main one that you have to remember is that if someone did something corrupt back in the 90s under the military dictatorship, you don't just go along with that in 2011 and say, oh, I guess that corrupt thing was done. So now we have to pay this guy a billion dollars for this, you know, action which was hap- which which was clearly corrupt at the time. The correct thing to do 
is for the Nigerian oil, Nigerian government to sell the oil field to any shell for $1.3 billion to keep the money for itself, to then use that money for the benefit of the Nigerian people. And if the former oil minister comes along and says, hey, that's my oil field, you can't sell it, they say, well, sue us. Right. And <laughs> yeah, agreed. And this is really important because part of the reason that this guy was able to essentially extort <laughs> everyone was because he had protection in the current Nigerian government or the, the government at the time, that he had all these political protectors around him that enabled him to do this. Those are the same people who then got paid out. Exactly. This is why Good Luck Jonathan and everyone else in the go- in the government wound up getting their cut, because ultimately they had every ability to tell him to go take a hike and, no, you don't own this oil field. Right. What I'm curious about is how high were the stakes here for... Dutch or for Royal Dutch Shell, because I mean, it's one thing to sort of enter into this potential. Clearly, they knew the risks when they were doing it. It's one thing to enter into it when it's like you're staking the business on it. This is the you need this to survive. But they're so massive. Was this a a nice to have or was this like essential for the rest the future of their business? So Shell has always been the biggest foreign oil company in Nigeria. And they've made a huge amount of money in Nigeria. And this deal was big but not huge by shell standards um it was actually bigger by any standards like any is a smaller company than shell and so their half of the deal was a much bigger deal to them than it was to shell but you're absolutely right that the that for both of them they could have just kept on doing what they were doing (laughs) and that they would have been okay i honestly wonder if it's just like sunk costs that Mm -hmm. it was like 10 years you're probably like dude it's been 10 years i'm gonna get that oil field do what it takes right yeah yeah. (laughs) but again i think that the most important thing to remember is why this is not just, uh, you know, one more story of corruption is that this has real consequences. This erodes the investment climate. This makes it harder for other investors to come in. This makes credit more expensive. This makes everything more expensive. This hurts the fiscal position of the Nigerian government. Like, it's serious. And it's uh, and it's a indication that for all that a series of Nigerian presidents and finance ministers have come in with massive anti-corruption campaigns. Um, none of it seems to have very much worked. This is correct. <laughs> That's the greatest cover, an anti-corruption campaign with the <laughs> well, intent of being corrupt. Actually, <laughs> side note, but it is true that often in countries when you hear people using, that they're saying they're going on an anti-corruption campaign, that can really often mean I'm going to try to arrest all of my um, enemies. Or See, you're trying to drain the swamp, yeah, we're, we're talking about Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yes, again. we are in fact talking about Saudi Arabia. <laughs> or China. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Let's have a numbers round. Um, Can I go first, if only because mine ties in? Yes. So my number is 783. Those are the number of corruption charges that one Jacob Zuma uh, faces. The former South African yes. president. Woohoo! <laughs> End of Zuma's exit. So yeah, uh, this is a this is a big deal in in South Africa. 
Jacob Zuma has been engaging in very corrupt practices involving state capture and this Gupta family and many other things for a very long time. And as a result of this, the investment climate in South Africa has just eroded. Faith in institutions has just eroded. And you have a country where, you know, is the most industrialized nation in Africa, you know, big economy, but is, I believe, the most unequal country in the world. The income inequality is so enormous. And what's so tragic is that it's like almost 25 years after the end of apartheid, and yet most of the wealth in the country is still owned by the white minority. And the weird thing is that Zuma's replacement, Sewa Ramaphosa, the former ANC leader and labor leader, um, is at the crazy rich end of the income and wealth spectrum himself. He somehow managed to become dynastically wealthy over those 25 years. Yeah, this we can maybe have another segment about this, a full segment about this at some point, because yes, Sewa Ramaphosa is definitely an improvement, but this is a guy who has his own complicated history. And... Working within the ANC, the the current governing party, he's in the same party as Jacob Zuma, is going to be hard. I think he's going to engage in anti-corruption activities. He already has their utility company, Eskom. He replaced the board. I think that's good. But he's going to have a very difficult road. Erin Griffith, do you have a number? I do. It's $50 million or expressed, as I like to do in Lamborghinis, it's $250. <laughs> and that is the amount of uh, cryptocurrency that was stolen or reported stolen this week from one of the wallets called blockchain.info, which I mentioned. And um, that's it's not the biggest hack or heist that we've seen. Um, but I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that the way they're doing it, uh, the way this one happened was a phishing scam. So the hackers bought uh, Google ads w- uh, for blockchain.info. You would click on them or people who would be searching you know, for the website would click on them, find a website that's almost exactly similar, put in all of their info, and then their wallets would immediately get emptied. Wow. And this is this is really interesting because it... it it uh, it's not the fault of blockchain.info. They did nothing the, wrong. They, they can't had, help it if people are, no... are they're like Royal Dutch copying. The, <laughs> <laughs> if people are copying their sites and you know making it believable enough that people will put their personal info and their passwords in and then have their wallets be emptied. Um, the problem, though, is that, you know, the platforms like Google and Facebook or any other advertising platform now has to play an increasing role in policing this stuff because, you know, obviously they don't want scammers buying ads, but at scale, it's really, really hard. And um, it was interesting to me also because, you know, this is one of the perils of naming your company something with bit, block, chain, or <laughs> coin, which almost every single one of these companies seems to have, which is that, you know, when you have a sort of generic name like that, it's very easy for people to replicate and scam you. Um, the other thing that was kind of interesting about this uh, this hack was that it um, disproportionately affected people in um, underbanked countries that are, you know, pouring a lot of their money into digital currencies. And ironically, one of them was uh, one of the countries that was affected the most was Nigeria, um, which is, I mean, a little bit ironic to me, given the stereotype of the, the Nigerian prince. Four, right. four nine right. scams. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the obvious question I have is, 
don't they have two-factor authentication? I mean, yeah, the, the security on a lot of these uh, sites, I mean, even with, with Coinbase, I have to send them a picture of myself, like a, a picture that was taken today. Uh, you scan your ID. There are a lot of ways, but I mean, uh, hackers are smart. They find ways to get around it. And the reason that the hacks and the, the heists have been so uh, prevalent and scary and such an issue is that it's it's a one-way transaction you cannot take it back it's irreversible and it's done immediately and it's very difficult to track there are now uh firms that are sprouting up that do these kinds of forensics that basically try to unravel all of the public ledger and figure out where the money came and went but there are no names attached to this so it's very difficult to and, do and do we know who the scammers that are? I mean, is this organized crime? Is this Russians? What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to go with Russians. Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you can blame is it Russia. North Koreans? I, I hear that North Koreans are into uh, something. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it is there, I mean, there are known, like, basically groups. And then there are uh, vigilante groups that are springing up to uh, to sort of go after and investigate these. But um, it sort of speaks to the issue we were talking about so, earlier. So, like, in the early days of... Bitcoin when we were just learning about it back around like 2011 or whatever everyone's like oh Bitcoin that's that thing which is used on the dark web to buy drugs and <laughs> it's all about illegal activity and then over the subsequent years there have been occasional attempts to make the case that maybe most blockchain based activity isn't illegal after all but it still does seem to be a huge amount of the activity going on is is some kind of scam or something the the headlines every day are dominated by either hacks or yeah or scams and uh you know both very different but but it, it's an it's an easy way to lose your money are, you are have people, to be are people still trading drugs and doing that kind of stuff on the blockchain yeah i mean I, whenever i whenever i ask somebody in crypto world why do do who uses bitcoin atms they always just say well drug dealers obviously <laughs> <laughs> Um, talking about drugs, I ha <laughs> um, you can go to a pharmacy, a mom and pop or a corporate pharmacy, um, and you can buy a packet of Advil and a packet of Pepsid for $15. Um, my number is 2979 for, and that is a number of dollars. For $2,979, you can get a packet of Duexis, which is a drug made by a company called Horizon, this Irish drug company. The only ingredients in Duexis are basically Advil and Pepsid. You can get exactly the same effect by taking an Advil and a Pepsid, but instead of getting $15 worth of Advil and Pepsid, you can get this thing called Duexid, which, Duexis, which combines the two. They have now done this again with another drug called Vimovo, um, you can combine Aleve and Nexium. That will cost you $36. Um, it's like a craft cocktail. It's a craft cocktail. <laughs> but, if you get a, but you can also buy this other thing called Vimovo, which is an FDA-approved drug, which is nothing but a combination of Aleve and Nexium. And that, too, is $2,979. We we need to have some way to combine these drug names and like blockchain names. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It would be amazing. So yeah, this is I mean, this is the classic FDA arbitrage yeah. that somehow if you combine these two things into one pill, you can charge thousands of dollars for stuff which you can just buy over the counter. You know what I find interesting though? <laughs> Quickly, that there was this allergy medication. I only know this because I have allergies. And 
it was actually less expensive for me to get it through my insurance. I'm sure my insurance company was charged significantly more, even though it was available over the counter. But it was more expensive for me to just buy it over the counter than for me to use my insurance to get right. it. Right. And so, this is and this is the horizon scam, right? Is that they bend over backwards to make sure that your copay is ten dollars or zero. So that you don't feel the price and that the only and that the people paying the three thousand dollars is someone else. It's like the classic example of the band-aid, the sixty dollar band-aid mm-hmm. or whatever that they always talk about. So in the end, this uh ultimately hurts healthy people, right? Because we have higher insurance premiums because the insurance companies are hurt by this. Wow, he- uh, healthy people and sick people. Anyone Everyone. with anyone with insurance <laughs> much, yeah. premiums gets, or even those without. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's actually that's true. Everyone pretty much. So I think that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thanks to Dan Schrader for producing. Um, thanks for coming along on Pi Day to the public theater. Remember the um, code if you want to come join us at the low road is money14. Just type that in, get your $30 tickets, and we'll meet you in the bar afterwards. Um, do listen to Hang Up and Listen, which comes out on Monday afternoons and is hosted by Josh Levin and Stefan Fatsis, which is a podcast all about sports ball. I know absolutely nothing about it, but they do. So if you want to learn about sports, listen to that one rather than to me, because you will actually learn something. Keep the emails coming. Our email address is slatemoney at slate.com. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.